you know, Spock got his first funfar at like age 30 something in Amok time. And he didn't get it until he started hanging around Kirk. So there's something there to consider. <laughs> <laughs> he said now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> Farinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas-Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today, our after-action report on San Diego Comic-Con, and how one of us visited Barbie's dream home without Oppenheimer. Then, James T. Kirk, the real one. I mean, the one played by Paul Wesley, but not a fake or alternative one, joins the crew of strange new worlds and helps Uhura out with a little ghost issue. Finally, we sit down with two special guests to discuss the history of Slash, Spurk, and that historic first meeting between Spock and his Tylon. Before we start, you had quite an interesting week at Comic-Con, Ryan. How did that go? So I did my yearly pilgrimage to to San Diego Comic-Con, which I've been attending since I was a kid growing up here in America's finest city. Last year's con after the pandemic was a bit of a shit show, but this year the con felt truly back. And without the big guns of Marvel and DC presenting their slate of yet again another bunch of superhero films, San Diego Comic-Con felt like the old days when it was just a celebration of comics, pop culture, and cosplay. And it seemed more crowded than ever, Mark, except in Hall H. I was actually able to get into the mythical Hall H without Marvel and DC being around. In the words of Ensign Rutherford, well, amazing! Last year, I didn't even manage to get into the Star Trek Universe panel. We were like right there at the door, and they're like, no more people let in. But this year, I was in Lake Mariner. Once again, it reminded me of all those previous conventions where you could get a first look at an upcoming episode before anyone else. Let me tell you, watching the Lower Decks Strange New Worlds crossover in a room full of 6,000 Trekkies was a thrilling moment. They even had the captain's chair from the bridge on the show floor. And I did snap a pic in full Strange New Worlds regalia Regulation John Fluvog boots included, which let me tell you, I don't know how the actors do it. They run in it. They walk in it all day long. My feet were killing me after just eight hours. In them. And I also got to hang out with some of my screenwriting buddies, which was really cool because some of them I only know through Twitter and haven't met in, in the flesh. Uh, and I got to finally meet uh, Trek Ranks podcaster Jim Morehouse at Enterprise Extra on Twitter in the flesh. And another collab with Jim is in the works, and this time it'll include tacos, lots and lots of tacos. Hmm. And finally, I got to attend the exclusive Comic-Con screening of the upcoming Babylon 5, The Road Home, and great maker. (laughs) After a series of meh sequels, this animated film is a return to form. No spoilers, but this is a love letter to the original series and opens the jump gate to new stories and possibilities. And I will say, it made me a bit weepy in places. And damn, it was good to see Sinclair again, my favorite character of the series. While no longer played by the talented and dearly missed Michael O'Hare, it felt as if I was watching him again. 
I was not that engaged in the show yet to care who was leading it at the time. Yeah. But on reviewing, Michael O'Hare is actually my favorite Babylon 5 captain. Yeah. I, I like John Sheridan, but he's very different in tone and demeanor than Sinclair. The best part is that this screening and panel reminded me of the old days when Joe Straczynski would screen episodes of Babylon 5 that had yet to air. I got to see Babylon Squared at San Diego Comic-Con before it ever aired on broadcast TV. I knew Babylon 4 was returning before anyone else did. Okay, one more thing. You know, I've been part of uh, Joe Straczynski's Patreon tier for writers for the past, I think, year now. And I submitted a short story for the workshop online. And he had some very kind words to say about the story, which encouraged me to sell it. And it did become the first piece of fiction I've ever sold in my 25 years as a professional writer. And so I got to thank him in person for that. And if you told teenage me, Mark, watching Babylon 5 and attending his panels that one day he'd shake my hand and tell me what a beautiful story I wrote, well, <laughs> he'd have a hard time believing you. Sometimes you can meet your idols. <laughs> <laughs> and Sorry. sometimes you can meet your idols and they're fantastic. So what about you, Mark? What did you get into this week? Well, the biggest part of my week was seeing Barbie, and it was surprisingly good. It's undeniably quirky and funny, and I wouldn't expect less from Greta Gorwig. I'm not a Margot Robbie fan at all, but I liked her here. And Ryan Gosling and Simu Liu were hilarious, and Kate McKinnon steals the show as weird Barbie. But the character that I most identified with was America Ferrer's real-life husband, who played her husband in the film. He's constantly trying to use bits of the language both his wife and daughter speak in order to fit in with them. That's me for real. <laughs> I think I told you that I was worried going in that this was going to be a typical fish-out-of-water story that mostly took place in the real world, but it's not that at all. The film's politics are a little muddled and confusing, but ultimately it was the kind of Feminism 101 primer that I think the average person unfortunately needs. And I'm glad so many people are seeing it. Mm -hmm. And unlike Oppenheimer, there was no Jew face. Barbie's creator, Ruth Handler, is played by Rhea Perlman. So <laughs> thumbs up. My only real reservation is something we touched on with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and The Dial of Destiny. I've followed Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach's work for about 20 years now. It's really kind of grating to see them working on a franchise film like this. Gerwig is apparently going to be doing a Chronicles of Narnia series for Netflix next. So it's worrying to me that her time creating original material may be over. Uh, I hope not. And as much as I am looking forward to seeing Barbie, which I plan to do, uh, because I will never watch another Nolan film ever again. <laughs> and I know that's going to piss off a lot of people, but I'm done with Christopher Nolan. I've outgrown him. But I think that Hollywood is taking the wrong lessons from Gerwig's Barbie because now they're like more toy IP, a Mattel cinematic universe. You know, they're taking the wrong lessons in that if you take something and you make it original and you make it interesting and you have an actual story, that's what people want. It just so happens that she did it with Barbie. You know, she could have done it with something else. And I think that the suits are learning the wrong lessons from its success. And next up, and I'm not kidding with you, Lena Dunham's Polly Pockets. <laughs> this has been confirmed. There's a script and everything.
Paramount, Mark, has overloaded us with Star Trek material this month. So we're basing it out in the most logical way we can. We felt Lost in Translation needed its own show. So that will be our focus today. Next week, we'll keep it light with reviews of Those Old Scientists and Subspace Rhapsody. We'll have some guests on to discuss Under the Cloak of War a week after that. And finally, we'll give the finale a whole show of its own. Now on to Lost in Translation. Ahura sees dead people as the Enterprise works to bring an important mining station online. Lieutenant James Tiberius Kirk helps her decipher the meaning of her visions and how they relate to a mysterious nebula at the edge of explored space. The Star Trek universe sure has a lot of nebula-based life forms in it. This is the second one in this series alone. It makes you think that Starfleet should stay out of them for safety's sake. They're like the sealed beach in La Jolla Cove up here in San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> it's like people keep going down into seal territory and then freaking out that the seals are attacking them. Ah, uh, you kind of went into their home. <laughs> but, you know, Strange New Worlds keeps doing what I wanted the original series to do. Give us a focus on Uhura. You know, like children in the comment, this is a horror focused episode. And it's also sort of a ghost story at the same time. We get the return of Bruce Horak as Hammer Spectre. But this just isn't another thing that has to be tech the tech. Right, Mark? Yeah. Lost in Translation is beat for beat, the next generation episode Night Terrors. You know, Mark in the Dark, One Moon Circles. Uh, we've got one person on the ship who's sensitive to the messages from an alien in trouble. Here it's Uhura. On Next Gen, it was Troy. Uh, they're both in a rush to solve the problem because someone they find on the derelict Federation ship has gone mad. Space madness! <laughs> both episodes even involve hydrogen in some way. But I'm going to give that a pass because where Night Terrors was just a puzzle box that gave us nothing about the crew of the Enterprise-D. Lost in Translation gives us a very personal story of Uhura coming to terms with the losses she's experienced throughout her life. Yeah, this is what separates Strange New Worlds from its 90s predecessors. It finds the emotion, the heart, and really wants to tell us something about these characters that we didn't before. Here, Uhura is running instead of confronting her emotions. She hasn't grieved over Hammer or even the death of her family in a shell crash. The weird shit with the aliens living in the heavy hydrogen water nebula is just the means to explore that. You know, in, in a lot of ways, this feels more like TNG's Remember Me, where the warp bubble revealed Beverly's fear of being truly alone. Yeah, this is the problem with Berman-era Trek that we can never discuss enough. So many of those episodes are about the logistics of solving a problem while completely ignoring the human angle, even when the story lends itself to it. You know, what did we learn in Night Terrors from Picard hearing his doorbell ring or Beverly seeing a bunch of dead bodies sit up? It, it's not specific to them. It's just spooky in a very generic way. Meanwhile, three seasons earlier, we had very specific character hallucinations and where no one has gone before. And we get it again here. Uhura's visions don't just save the cloud aliens, but they let her come to grips with Hammer's death. All over, it's 
really smart and well done. Yeah, Strange New Worlds brings back the emotion in Star Trek, something that started with Discovery. Stories should move an audience, make them feel. And a majority of the 90s shows were just, as you said, Mark, puzzle box tales that really didn't allow the characters to show different sides of themselves. But here we get raw emotion in every episode. And damn you, Strange New Worlds, you keep making me weepy-eyed every week this season. Yeah, I think we all were rightly emotional when Hammer says, I think a more proper goodbye in this one than he did in um, the Gorn episode, whatever it was called. What was it called? <laughs> now, I went, now I blanked out. It's okay, who cares? We'll figure it out later, who cares? <laughs> I also really liked, once again, nobody labels a crew member crazy. I think that this is a hallmark of good Star Trek. These people are out on the frontier, exploring the unknown. You can't afford to dismiss anyone's weird visions as simple space madness. And it's especially important because like Dr. Crusher and Remember Me, and also in Cause and Effect, it's a woman who's expressing concerns. And unlike a lot of times in the modern world, she's being listened to without question. That, to me, reflects a measurably progressive future. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I know I've been critical of how Pike is mostly background instead of driving stories forward, but I think here's a perfect example of what you're talking about, right? Pike trusts Uhura immediately and says, are you sure? She says, yes. Says, all right, you tell us what we need to do next. and. Because of that, in the last few episodes, I'm reconsidering my position because Discovery's second season, Pike, was a catalyst for the other characters to shine. And that's his role in this series. I love that he trusts Uhura. Let's her fire the torpedoes. You know, and maybe this version of Pike works best when he isn't the center of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind that he's never the center of things. I, I just... I just mind when he's out of the loop. Yes. If this had been a situation where Uhura and Kirk had blown up the station on their own without consulting with him, I think that that would have been a problem. Right. And I don't think that's in Kirk's character anyway. But Uhura isn't alone in dealing with uh, nebula aliens trying to communicate their pain and loss through her own loss. This week, we finally get James Tiberius Kirk the prime version who is still a lieutenant serving on the Farragut. And he's every bit the Jim Kirk of those old scientists. I mean, the original series. He's empathetic, charming, and inspiring. He's willing to help anyone in need. You know, everyone says that Jim's this horn dog who will hit on anything with two legs. That might be so. But here he senses Uhura is in distress, and he's not going to hit on someone who's in pain. He's going to help them. And, and that moment when he tells Uhura that we all face death and have to learn to, to face it, that's pure Kirk. And, and the scene where he tells La'an about growing up with his father gone for most of his childhood, well, I felt that in my bones as a Navy brat. I, I asked my mom similar questions like that. And uh, I got similar answers. I mean, you know, Paul Wesley's has grown on me. He's Jim Kirk now. 
I see shades of Shatner's performance. And uh, he has the charm of Chris Pine. But he makes the role his own. It's really funny to have them point out that Kirk is the youngest first officer in Starfleet history, while Paul Wesley is the oldest actor to play Kirk. He's supposed to be six years younger than Kirk was in the original series, but he's eight years older than Shatner was when he started the role. It is kind of funny, but like Hollywood math and age has always been that kind of wonky thing. Remember how Alexander started out, he was like two, and then now he's like four, and now, and then you get to do Space Nine, and he's like 20 already. <laughs> it's like, what? Uh, yeah, I mean, I like Paul Wesley, but he reminds me of that joke in The Simpsons, the one that Leonard Nimoy was in, where uh, Jason Priestley comes on, and he smiles, and all the wrinkles show up in his face. <laughs> Maybe after Strange New Worlds, they'll just jump to after the motion picture and then he'll be the appropriate age. <laughs> and as for that handshake, we'll be talking more about that steamy moment in our next segment. Today, we have two special guests here to talk about that historic first meeting between Kirk and Spock, as well as the history of shipping the two characters. I know both Don and Catherine from Twitter, where they both make amazing insights into both Kirk and Spock and Star Trek in general. Uh, welcome to both of you. Hey, I get to be here. Me too. Don is a recent nursing graduate and a nurse in training in the Philippines. Uh, he likes to create digital art and fan cams and listens to a lot of 90s R&B. And Catherine is a creative based in Ohio. Her work has been published by Fifth Wheel Press, Slay House Publishing, and Jake. And she loves writing, drawing, and cooking. And has a one-eyed dog named Winky, I understand. <laughs> That's a great name. And Don, you make some really amazing fan edits and music videos that I've really enjoyed concerning Kirk and Spock. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. It's all I did in the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get into it. Um, you know, shipping Kirk and Spock is as old as the franchise itself. Some could argue slash fiction kept Star Trek alive after it was canceled in 1969. Can you both tell us a little bit about the history of K slash S, or as it's currently known, Spurk? Yeah, I think that majorly women sort of caught it, like, you know, from the get go. And I think that it there was Kirk Spock shipping going on from season one, but Amok Time was the point where that was the catalyst because having Spock go into heat and have it cured by wrestling with his captain in the sparkly sands of Vulcan <laughs> was a little bit on the nose. Um, and really just been going strong ever since, honestly, as proved by me and Don and others on Twitter and elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, they're generally regarded as founding fathers of Slash or shipping. They became like the first ship to ever have like the modern definition of what shipping means to like the phenomenon. So yeah, that it's great to ship two people from like way before my parents were born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they invented the term Slash. I mean, it was coined mm -hmm. to, you know, describe the 
text habits with uh, how you format um, when you're describing a sexual relationship between the two. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and it, it certainly got to the point that Roddenberry had to acknowledge it. <laughs> and he did not deny it. So. No. He certainly did not deny it. And whether it was intentional or unintentional, that queer subtext reading is like littered through that show. <laughs> I mean, the very fact that Roddenberry said he based them sort of off um, Alexander and Hephaestion, who are historic, mm-hmm. uh, actual gay people. It's like, Um, Um, that comes from an interview that he did with two slash fiction writers and you know (laughs) basically yes he says you know i actually have the quote here we certainly had the feeling that the affection was sufficient for that meaning uh sexual relations if that were the particular style of the 23rd century so basically he was saying if bros stup in the 23rd century then those bros were definitely stupping yeah (laughs) My roommate and her friend just had the next gen episode on the other night where Deanna is going to have an arranged marriage. I can't remember what it's called, but she and Riker are calling each other Mzadi and I love you and we have this soul bond. And I was like, hey, did you guys know that the prototype for Riker and Deanna was um Dehila and Kirk and Spock and that they <laughs> this is all based in Kirk and Spock and they just made them hat. Did you know that? Did you know that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you just brought up the magic word to Hyla, and it's not a term that is well known by the general fan population. So, could you tell us a little bit about it? Well, to Hyla was first coined by Gene Roddenberry in his book, The Motion Picture. And he described it as like friend, brother, and lover. And he keeps saying that it can be interchanged. But honestly, in the fandom, um, like view of it it means like the three of it in one friend brother and lover it's you know the way we view spark that's how their relationship is like for us yeah (laughs) and i can't recall where in the motion picture book this was said but i remember spock saying that his bond with kirk rivaled the passions of the vulcans like taking each other in the sands of ancient vulcan it's like okay boy but like it's like somewhat as gene roddenberry was a chronically horny individual as we know uh descriptions get a little like very very suggestive in uh even the motion picture book where he's kind of addressing and maybe declining these readings yeah why bring up lover in the first place yeah i think roddenberry was very spurt curious he never denied it yeah, and, and it should be known that those slash fiction writers that he was hanging out with later went on to write official novelizations for pocketbooks. I just got a censored copy of Killing Time a couple months ago, but I was so excited because I just found it in a vintage toy store, you know, out in the wild. But the uncensored Killing Time would be a great thing to own as that was just uh. essentially slash that somehow got through and got published without any changes. Yes, Della Van Heise's book that was an early part of the Pocketbook series. So um, what do you guys think about the current casting of Kirk and Spock? Because Shatner, obviously, whether or not Bill will admit it today, he obviously played Kirk as totally head over heels in love with Spock. Like his eyes literally <laughs> light up the moment no. Spock shows up 
in any scene, he's like, hi. He's literally looking at the man's cakes half the time on the bridge. So <laughs> so I don't know why Shatner doesn't understand that there's a clear reading of these characters. It's in his eyes. Around 2014, he had been making tweets joking about Kirk and Spock. So yeah. yeah. So what switch flipped there. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Spock, you almost make me believe in miracles. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I don't know what says come to my cabin later than that. <laughs> but what do we think about the current casting of Kirk and Spock? Do you think uh both Ethan Peck and Paul Wesley are right to fill these roles that obviously has this emotional bond that is almost timeless to me personally i like both of the actors especially paul i think paul's his opinion on kirk generally um his characterization on kirk and the way he um delivers his line i think like um he's really good (laughs) for me Ethan's great you know i've been watching him since season two of discovery and I've generally just enjoyed him. So. <laughs> no, I agree with everything Don said. When Paul Wesley was first cast as Kirk and Don can corroborate this, I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I did not even know who he was, but I just looked at him and I was like, no, no. And purely for physical reasons, because I was like, no, he's too skinny. That's like, what my mom <laughs> said. He's too skinny. I was like, Kirk's thick. But despite those initial misgivings, um, I think that Paul Wesley has done an amazing job with Kirk. I think that he's played him really well. Every opinion on Kirk that he has expressed, as Don said, um, has been correct. He hasn't fallen into any of the Kirk is a violent womanizer drift. But that's also because I think that the writers have smiled kindly on him. And Don and I and our friend Snow always say this. Modern Star Trek writers, Discovery and Strange New Worlds particularly, really thrive when writing background characters and supporting characters. But if a character is a main character, they start to have some trouble. And I think that we saw that with the shift from Spock in... I think Ethan Peck is a great Spock, and I love him. I think he's great, but I and I think that the writing for him in Discovery was very good. But I think the writing has declined in Strange mm-hmm. New Worlds. And it makes me sad because I love him as Spock. But as it is, I kind of go like, Ugh. I just hope that the, in one case, the writing continues to treat one kindly and the writing improves for the other. My experience of watching Strange New Worlds have been, at first, I've been really, really excited for it. I've been here since 2020, since it was announced. But over the years, season two comes on, I became more and more disappointed and it's just sad. <laughs> I do agree that there is a difference between Spock in season two of Discovery and in, in Strange New Worlds. It's like he lost the sassy part of Spock. Yeah. And and that's the thing that I feel is missing a lot with the characterization that's in Strange New Worlds. And uh, it, it, yeah, there is this disconnect because I want him to have a little bit more like of the, the Nimoy quip. And that's because Nimoy was feminine in a lot of ways like down to physicality down to the way he spoke and the way the way he stood yeah 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 Yeah. he was he was feminine and modern star trek executives studio executives clearly want to make it very clear that spock is masculine and spock is heterosexual (laughs) 
Orpheus eyeshadow. <laughs> yes. Yes. Give him his eyeshadow yeah. and his chest hair back, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, his cotton candy pink lipstick. The blush. <laughs> he's fabulous. He's got to be fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's part of the sassiness. Even if, you know, like with the pilot, Spock looked janky. Like Spock was kind of messed up in the yeah. original pilot. But even then, without his meticulously combed hair, without his beautiful eyebrows, without his nice makeup, he was still feminine and he was still defying gender norms just in his behavior and in his existence. So even if we wanted to try to make the excuse, oh, well, they're just writing to that earlier Spock, it still is not, it doesn't work. Yeah, and Runberry really liked to play with gender a lot, especially with aliens. You know, you have the Telosians and the Binars, both being male-voiced characters that are played by women, so that they have this feminine physique to them, but they have the masculine speech. For the life of me, I cannot remember who it is on Twitter. It's one of my mutuals. Um, but they have pointed out that, you know, as Roddenberry was kind of forced to combine Spock and number one into one character, following the first pilot, Spock absorbed a lot of those feminine qualities and absorbed a lot of the characterization of a woman in, the, in a male-dominated workplace and thus became even more feminine and even more of a touchstone character for uh, female viewers. Hmm. Right. He's very much a mirror-based character so you know that kind of brings up what do we think about the push for no homo spock and seemingly so far a no homo kirk paired with laan honestly i really am not enjoying this whole chapel and spock brigade like what made spock um his the way we view him is because he didn't really like chapel nor to bring in tos so i don't understand why strange world is trying to build like some kind of history between the two of them and connect it with Amok Time. And for me, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense plot wise. And it, it really turns Chapel into someone pathetic. If you were to take the Strange New Worlds as canon, you would cringe every time you saw her in the original series. Because why are you down bad for a man who is who rejected you in the past? There's really no reason. And the writing in the original series really I thought it was very clear that this was an unrequited temporary crush that she first voiced in Naked Time after having her inhibitions stripped away. And she last voiced in, voiced in Plato's Stepchildren to say, I used to want this so badly, but now I wish I could die when they're being made to kiss, clearly showing that she's over it. It was a quick infatuation. But to answer the second part of your question... I never like a no homo for Kirk, but I do think that his stuff with La'an is in character. Mm -hmm. I hope that Jim's character is used to uplift and enrich La'an's, frankly, because I think she got the short end of the stick in season one uh, with mm -hmm. characterization and writing. And I think that his presence has enriched her and shown a different side of her. And I think his behavior with her is in character because we know that Jim Kirk is not straight, but he does like women. He loves women. and. I think, as of now, I'm good with it. Well, Mark and I find the Chapel Spock stuff cringe, too. But I am okay with the Laon pairing, because it, you're right, it is very much in tune with Kirk, because Kirk's empathic, and he falls for women who are strong, but he also tends to fall for people whom he can help, right? I like that 
in terms of Laan, it's it's not framed as this is another Jim Kirk relation. It's framed in the show as this is Laan falling for someone who finally sees her. And I hope that they'll take this opportunity. And I like half hope they will and half hope they won't because I'm scared of how they would handle it um, based on their track record. But, um, you know, if there's anything about Jim Kirk's past that could use more extrapolation, it is the insane traumas that he undergoes and are only mentioned once and never again. So I think that seeing a little bit more about Tarsus or at least seeing him work through that a little bit more, if done correctly, I'd love to see that and see him and La'an bond over these very similar experiences, these very similar traumas that they shared. Yeah. Now I want to see that too, because Tarsus is a big thing that's only in one episode and Kirk loves to eat. And you'd think that that comes out of his trauma of being in this food shortage. He's very concerned with eating. And I think that's one thing Strange New Wars got right. Someone posted on Tumblr where the post went like, Kirk, whenever he tries to comfort somebody, hey, you want a hot dog? Let me get another hot dog. Hey, you want to split this cookie? It's it's a great post. And, and it makes me, you know, my heart breaks for him that wow. he tries to comfort people with giving or sharing his food. I like that. Yeah. Now... You guys are what Ryan and I would call the youths. <laughs> and in fact, you're not much older than my daughter is, but you talk about the original series like a bunch of grizzled old timers. <laughs> so what got you obsessed with this show from the 60s? You know, funny story for me. <laughs> well, it was start the pandemic. I had been living alone and I, and Twitter had became like a haven for me. Anyways, um, at that time, I had been a huge, huge RuPaul's Drag Race fan. <laughs> and it was season 12 was airing. And I happened to really, really, really like Jackie Cox from the very start. And I have been really obsessed with her. And she started talking about Star Trek, the one um, RuPaul's Drag Race episode. And I was like, okay, what is this show? I got bored one day and then I checked Netflix and it was there and I started watching <laughs> and that's in the rest of history. I remember it was 2020. It was, I don't know, five months into the pandemic. And I had seen a post on Tumblr that was just like a historical post. Like, oh, did you know that like Kirk Spock was the first slash ship and slash fan fiction? Here is the first slash trick ever to be published anywhere. And I read it knowing nothing about the show and just thought it was interesting. It was a couple hundred words. And, you know, on typewriter paper. And it was completely, totally ambiguous, not clear who the other person's gender is, not clear who the other person is. Um, and I was just like, oh, that's cool. Like, neat. Um, and <laughs> I um, loved David Tennant. And on his podcast, he interviewed George Takei. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know George Takei was in the old Star Trek, because at that point I was like, he's in the 80s one with Patrick Stewart, right? But no. Um, And then one night after getting home from my busing job at a restaurant, I had the house to myself and I was like, I need something to watch that's stupid, that I won't be anxious about, that's like campy, that's zero commitment that like I won't get really into. And so I looked up Star Trek, the original series, and it happened to be streaming on Prime. You know, if it hadn't been available on a streaming platform I had, I would not have watched it. Me too. And I started the first episode and I was like, this is really bomb. And I always laugh because I have a text from that night to a group chat 
where I texted, oh, I'm checking out Star Trek, the original series. And then 10 minutes later, I texted, I like Spock. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was rife for a new thing to fixate on then and Star Trek walked on in. Yeah. Prior to the pandemic, I had no idea who Spock was. Zero (laughs) idea who Kirk and Spock was. I don't think I've heard anyone talk about Star Trek in my life, though I know about this. This is like (laughs) the most knowledge I have of Star Trek. He's he's showing the Vulcan (laughs) peace sign. Yeah. I remember running around in third grade. I was like doing this to everyone. Like, this is from Star Trek. Even though I had no idea what Star Trek was. (laughs) This is incredible. So the two of you have only been watching this show for three years. You have a knowledge of canon and the history of the show that rivals people who have been watching it for decades. It rivals me. And I've been watching it since the mid 80s. Well, you know, that's what hyperfixation gets you. <laughs> yeah, that's what the pandemic hyperfixation Pandemic, yeah, like literally nothing. I did nothing, you know. Both combined. <laughs> was, college Deadly was online, weapon. so I had a lot of time researching stuff. Yeah. Well, you did, you and- did something. You got into Star Trek and you really, really deep dived into Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just how queer people view media yes yeah i would say yeah that's that is very true and i also think there's like this interesting intersection between drag and star trek right because there is a lot of klingon drag i I just came back from san diego comic-con and there it's it's just like this intersection of cosplay and star trek and drag like you could do a venn diagram about it (laughs) it's true It, it it boggles me like at this point, modern Star Trek hasn't shown any drag queen. Not even invite Jackie Cox to play a background character or something. It, it, crazy. Um, in Columbus, there's a drag queen. I cannot remember her name. Her name might be Snot Rocket, but I am not positive. But at drag shows, you know, she wears like a green bodysuit. She has green face paint and forehead ridges. And she lip syncs to a Klingon cover of Kiss Me. And it's great and you know she does a lot of star trek based drag and i mean that's just in columbus ohio which you would not really think of as a drag epicenter you know there's a drag queen on ripple's drag she's named dax (laughs) and turns out she she is a huge trekkie as well yeah it's so weird though that okay so like discovery got out of the gate with so much queer representation and now we're in Strange New Worlds, and it's like the no homo Spock. There's barely any queer characters in the background. There are queer coded characters like Laan, Number One, Ortegas. Chapel is bi officially, but she's never been seen with anyone but a man. And then, like this season, they have a non binary actor playing the new transporter chief. But once again, that's in the background. So it's like, Come on, guys, bring it back to the foreground. <laughs> Have Kirk kiss Spock. That's all we're asking. Yeah. Um. Sometimes Celia happens to like my tweets. <laughs> and I would tweet like, hey, when would Uhura kiss a girl or something? And Celia literally liked it and, t- and tweeted me like, like, yeah, when? Like, they literally agreed. <laughs> and she's literally like waiting just for an Uhura queer plot, uh, I think. <laughs> Yeah, the only, really the only hope queerness-wise I have with Strange New Worlds is Celia Uhura for the simple facts that Celia is queer. And 
that they are clearly passionate about that and are <laughs> speaking up that they would like that to happen. Even though Uhura is a leg, a very important legacy character, I wouldn't say my hope is gone for that. And even just for Celia's sake, I hope that something happens because I mean, like, come on, the fact that Uhura was never seen with a man consensually in the original series, and it was the sixties, like, come on. Yeah. You know, the thing is, we're talking about visible queer characters in modern shows. When you look back at the original series, Kirk and Spock are really all just subtext. And for old guys like Ryan and I, that was all that we had growing up. We had to make do. But I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> we had Maud. Uh, but there are other new shows. Even Star Trek shows like Discovery that have more explicit queer relationships. Why are the cool kids still into Spurk? Well, <laughs> you know, I think there's like this phenomenon happening in, in a lot of media where men um, writers, they don't write women very much or very good that they accidentally write male characters have deep relationships with other male characters and it happens in star trek it happens in star wars it happens in a lot of media and i think that's like the foundation of a lot of shipping cultures because of how writers just doesn't know how to write women some reasons why i think spurk has been so enduring is at this point because of the history behind it and the, the community that exists for it but primarily the fact that you can watch it it's not necessarily oh that it endures it's that new people watch it and go oh <laughs> it's that the gayness holds up even watching tos with my roommates just as i said earlier why mr spock you almost make me believe in miracles when that happened and then the episode immediately ended my roommate just turned to me and went what <laughs> <laughs> Because there are so there are just a great many instances, and I always say this in Star Trek that would not make sense just thematically and plot wise if Kirk and Spock were not in love and were not a couple. I say that the original series from the first pilot all the way through the last scene of the Undiscovered Country makes the most sense if you view it as a chronicling of Kirk and Spock's relationship and their love for each other. And just the fact that, um, as Leonard Nimoy said, Spock is so relatable and so beloved because he's an outsider and he's different and we all feel different. And the fact that Spock can be this strange little person who is simultaneously really hot and endearing inspires a lot of love for him. And the fact that he can be loved and love in turn, this very stereotypically attractive man who is simultaneously not like the echelon of male attractiveness because he's soft he's small he's respectful he's emotional and i know that most queer trekkies view kirk as bisexual and also most queer trekkies view kirk as trans and i think that there is a lot that sort of makes it very easy to view these you know makes it so that they aren't big leaps makes it so they aren't big stretches and um not to use a James Baldwin sentiment here, but when James Baldwin said you feel something and you think that it's just you and then you read something from 200 years ago and you find that they felt the exact same thing. It's just sort of that mm -hmm. looking into a show from the past about the future and seeing these sentiments still exist there, whether intentional and conscious or not, is something encouraging. 
You know, I'm I'm the token straight guy here, <laughs> and I have no stake whatsoever in Kirk and Spock being a couple. For me, it is purely an evidence-based thing. It's there. It's on the screen. Gene Roddenberry talked about it way too much. The fact that the history goes back to like their first appearance and that it's so apart and people don't realize how part of the franchise it has been. I can't deny it. Exactly. I, I could try. The, it would be like fighting against the waves. No, and because even, I can't remember what book it was, Ursula K. Le Guin's, but um, a lot of people have theorized that she was likely one of those housewives who wrote Kirk Bach fan fiction before she really came into her career in her own right. But in this book, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen the quote, Captain Kirk chasing after blonde after blonde every week. Meanwhile, Spock always stood aloof, alone. Captain Kirk would never know that Spock loved him truly, hopelessly forever. <laughs> Ursula Le Guin was clearly a very, very intelligent and perceptive woman. <laughs> so the fact that she would write such a thing, and just the fact as well that Leonard Nimoy, a year before Star Trek, actually, you know, it would have been during the time, I think, of the first pilot and during early development of the show, not only starred in, but also produced Death Watch in 1965, which was an adaptation of the Jean Genet play Hope Surveillance, which was literally textually gay. It's about three gay prisoners sharing a cell and the two, essentially the two bottoms are fighting over the top. And that's basically the plot. <laughs> <laughs> that is basically the plot. Um, and Leonard Nimoy plays bottom in chief. Jules LeFranc. Um, and not only did he find this important enough to perform it live with his fellow actors, one of whom was Michael Forrest, who played Apollo um, in Who Mourns for Adonai, but not only did he find it important enough to do that, and he said he, he felt like they might get raided any minute while they were wow. performing wow. it live. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting? This is like, this is the role that got Nimoy Spock. <laughs> exactly. No, and because I've seen this reference, as Don said, as a partial influence on like, oh, yeah, we've seen him in this. He was excellent in this. And not only was it important enough to him to perform it live and to make a movie out of it, it was important enough to him to contact Jean Genet directly, to buy the rights from him, to produce the movie himself, to spend a lot of his own money producing this movie that was ultimately blackballed because it was very gay and also pretty depressing, even though I love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, a year before Star Trek premiered, people have posted comparison shots of Death Watch to Star Trek, like the way Nimoy will like look at this actor in a romantic or sexual way compared with the way Nimoy will have Spock look at Kirk, <laughs> like in a supposedly platonic scene. So it's like, it's not that Nimoy didn't know. Maybe Shatner didn't know. Maybe maybe Shatner didn't know, but Nimoy certainly was worldly and progressive enough to know what he was doing. It's weird because you said like, you know, Nimoy probably clearly knew that Shatner maybe not, but like every scene, even the motion picture, Shatner doesn't come alive in that movie until Nimoy shows up. <laughs> and Kirk very clearly looks at Spock the way that he looks at the women that he's supposed to be romancing on the show. Yeah. I saw this one gift from Tumblr where he the way he holds women is the same way he would hold Spock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very passionate about it. And RuPaul has this wonderful quote where and he talks, 
about his relationship with his partner and how he lets his partner be with someone sexually. And he's like, well, I love this man and we love each other. Why would I prevent him from having an experience? And I think that's Spock. That's like how Spock views Kirk is like, I love this man. I think I would let him have, because I know that he goes every way <laughs> and, and I don't, but I want him to, I want him to be happy. And yeah. And I, yeah, so I think I think that I think I think that's what's happening. <laughs> On the flip side of that though, I love those times where you can see that Spock is clearly either jealous or just like seriously. Um Dagger of the Mind is the first one that I think of when Jim is, you know, mind wiped and trying to make out with Helen Noel and Spock comes in and is like <laughs> yeah. But um more, more often than not, you see Kirk be jealous over Spock. He gets very, very angry very quickly whenever anyone expresses interest in Spock. You know, this side of paradise is the number one example because he is so angry about Spock's relation relationship. I say that in quotes because it's completely non-consensual on Spock's, Spock's part. But he is so yes. angry about Spock's relationship with Layla Kalomi that one, he does not even register how completely weird and out of character it is at first. And he is so furious that the spores do not affect him when he initially gets blasted. That is the level of anger that he has. He's angry enough that Bones is the voice of reason. Bones says, that's not, that something's not right here. That didn't sound like Spock. And Jim's like, did you just not call me, sir? Like, that's sir to you, mister. <laughs> I also love what you said, Catherine, about it, like being this, like we're seeing the evolution of the relationship because very much in the undiscovered country, they're bickering like an old married couple. <laughs> yeah. You spoke for me? What do you mean you spoke for me? <laughs> you know, what's what got me really into to spurt were the movies. I think at that point, Kirk and Spock, the phenomenon of Slash had been around in, in a lot of conventions, but more so they're in secret. If Star Trek had been against this whole Slash thing, I think they would not have written Kirk and Spock um, that way that, that we saw in the motion picture. And especially in Search for Spock, where Kirk literally destroys his entire ship when we know that's his ship like that's like one of his plot lines where he loves his ship more than anyone you know that scene in not sure i think it was the naked time where he goes off like everything i do is for her which is the ship but in in um star trek 3 search for spock he literally you know <laughs> he literally destroyed the whole ship just to save spock which is insane to me and that's my foundation of why I think Kirk and Spock are married. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I completely agree. And I've said this to Don many times, but in my opinion, the sequence from when Kirk destroys the Enterprise to when Kirk beams back aboard um, the Klingon ship holding Spock to him mm -hmm. and holding out the gun and saying, don't. Um, it's the like stress <laughs> that oh stress, but also that entire sequence is one of the most romantic scenes in cinema. I think just the gentleness, the fighting to the death, the giving of the thing that you love the most for the other. It's just really, and it benefits from Leonard Nimoy's direction. But um, <laughs> just really exceptionally romantic. Like no matter what way. 
that you spin it. In Star Trek V, well, despite its, you know, <laughs> reviews and stuff, but I think during the making of this movie, Leonard Nimoy read the first script where Spock was totally going to become a traitor, I guess, like, be against Kirk, and Nimoy was like, I am not going to play in this movie if you do, do not change the script. So I think Nimoy himself knows that Kirk and Spock's relationship is really, really important, that he he refuses to play the part if that relationship is not shown on screen. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been, talk- we've been talking for a while, so I just want to make sure that we get this question in, and I, I don't want to keep you guys any, any longer since it's late and early. Uh, but what's the big question of the day? How do we feel about the handshake that launched a thousand ships? Did Strange New Worlds hit it out of the park or did they disappoint? You know, that scene, it it was good. It was perfect for me. It was simple. And the fact that Uhura set them up, it's it's like cherry on top. She would, I think at their wedding, she would give an awesome um, maid of honor speech. And she will continue to brag about like, hey, I made this too. She takes all of the credit. And <laughs> I think that's what makes it so, so funny to me. All, the entire scene. It's just really simple. And it's well done, to be honest. And I really like I really like the whole, it did not disappoint me. <laughs> um, I'm on completely the same page as Don. I was surprised pleasantly surprised that they handled it as well as they did because i was worried that it was gonna be this big thing or they were gonna be enemies at first but um kirk watching spock play chess earlier just keeping an eye on him even before they meet going your falcon friend over there um having this bonding time with uhura and then spock's friend that then spock just completely inserting himself into the conversation and leaning over to grab kirk's class (laughs) his friend uhura introducing them and them having a handshake which you know Vulcan but them having a normal introduction and sharing a drink together with Uhura was such a normal and natural introduction to any relationship let alone this relationship I was really pleasantly surprised by it and and Spock shaking hands with somebody and giving it a look too I mean (laughs) that's a big thing for a Vulcan he's like I gotta touch this guy And I have a friend who uh, is the uh, father of uh, one of my daughter's friends, and we discuss each episode, and and I I think he's never really considered Spurk before. I may have introduced him to it, but he was like right out of the gate. That was kind of steamy. <laughs> it was. It he's was. on board. Like, why was the close-up on the handshake? And yeah, Spock exactly. never someone's hands and yeah. showed <laughs> And then I love how, like, they did the reverse shot where it's framed with Uhura smiling like, yeah, this is a good match. Yeah. <laughs> I also, like, you mentioned earlier how, like, Kirk was watching Spock play chess, and that is just so filled with queer subtext. Your Vulcan friend there should protect his queen. Kirk's really interested in his queen. You're like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and Paul Wesley's a huge spurt, like, he like no, it's Spurk. Yeah, he mentioned it in an interview. <laughs> yeah, multiple times. <laughs> multiple times. There's gonna be a really uh Spurk. One... Spurk, yeah. Or um That's our name. And the other ones. Call, call. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
just was to say, leave it to their imagination. Yeah, I think um, Paul Wesley being an alumni of the Vampire Diaries, which is also a huge thing among my generation, mm-hmm. and the shipping culture there is really big as well. I think he has had past experience with fans shipping his yeah. character with other people. So. Yeah. And I think he's, you know, doing kind of like fan service by seeing Spurk. So <laughs> And there's a difference between fan service and like baiting with this stuff. Like I feel like fan service comes from a kind place. Yeah, I don't think Paul Wesley is baiting. I definitely don't feel that from him. If I feel any baiting, it's with characters like Laan and Ortegas. <laughs> you know, where it's like Ortegas, absolutely. A- I know absolutely Don- Ortegas. Number one. Yeah, and number one. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me started on the other people in Strange New World. Don't get <laughs> okay, us started. We'll, 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 we'll keep it here. So is there anything you guys want to plug to our viewers and then let them know where they can find you on the social Ethernet? You can find me at Hesbian Spock on Twitter, and um, I have a GoFundMe fundraiser linked there, pinned to my profile, um, raising money to help Don immigrate here to, if that wasn't clear, here to the United States, to Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, feel free to check it out. Celia donated, so <laughs> good enough for yeah. them. Um, I'm on Twitter, MindMill, but it's spelled instead of an I, it's an it's a lowercase L, and I'm also plugging the same GoFundMe so I could finally meet Catherine and the rest of my friends. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us. This has been really, really fun. Seeing young fans discuss this show, it renews my interest in it mm-hmm. because you're bringing new stuff to it that I wouldn't have considered. So it, it just makes me fall in love with the show again to see new people discussing it and redefining it and reinterpreting it. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys being here. It's great to meet younger queer fans. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah. That's it for this week. Just a reminder, we'll be catching up with Strange New Worlds since we got three new episodes in seven days' time. In the meantime, I'm Ryan Riddle, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. Our music you wish was your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all of her work at SockPuppet.us. You can find me at TrekComic on Twitter. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with? Open a hailing frequency to us. You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Jerks. That's not really a spoiler, Ryan Gosling in a black t-shirt singing. <laughs> but when you see him in the black shirt, just think of me. Be like, okay. <laughs> like, wow, Audrey. Audrey thinks he's hot in this. <laughs> frosted tips and everything. <laughs> I used to have frosted tips. <laughs>